0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This edition is all about regulation. This week, NICE found that it will no longer be able to restrict the use of any drug that exceeds its £30,000 cost per quality. This has caused consternation in some areas of the health sector, and we'll be finding out what it may mean.
1: Well, you know... There's an old joke saying don't allow the frontline troops to have to make the decisions about whether to fight and when.
0: Also this week. The FDA has come under fire for its regulation of drugs. Vioxx and lately Avandia have led to changes in the rules dealing with initial assessment and post-market surveillance. But the FDA doesn't just regulate drugs. Medical devices also fall under its remit. We'll be hearing about how they're giving manufacturers an easy regulatory ride.
2: When this got started, devices were far simpler.
0: But first, NICE. Alan Maynard is a professor of health economics at the University of York. He's written an editorial published online this week about the future of NICE. So Alan, Andrew Lansley has decided to remove NICE's ability to set the ceiling for what the NHS is willing to pay for drugs. And instead, it's going to move to this value-based pricing model. Can you explain how that's actually going to work?
1: Well, currently NICE appraises the scientific information about clinical effectiveness and takes the price from the industry to determine whether it's less than £30,000 per quali or whatever and make a decision about reimbursement in the NHS. There's been continuous argument about price setting and whether the industry sets too high a price. So the argument from the Office of Fair Trading over the last two or three years was we should be more aggressive in setting prices. And value-based pricing is essentially trying to set markers about the potential clinical benefits of new drugs and then translate those into reasonable prices. But the devil is in the detail because the question is, how do you translate your assessment of clinical effectiveness into the price?
0: So does that mean when drugs are chosen, there'll be no upper limit on what can be spent?
1: Well, I think... The crucial thing is what the details of this scheme are going to show. If you were really interested in controlling the cost and inflation in the pharmaceutical budget, you'd look at the clinical effectiveness data from the trials, and you'd make conservative assumptions about its value and set the price in relation to conservative values. If subsequently the product showed much greater potential, much greater of a benefit for patients, then you'd allow the price to rise. Now, of course, industry will be horrified by that. Industry will say, let's take a generous view of what the potential benefits are. And then subsequently, if they're not actually produced for your patients, we'll let you negotiate the price down. So the question is how in this system you start. You start at the conservative level where a mere economist would recommend you start, or do you start at the generous level where you're trying to help the industry? And there's always this problem that government is trying to help industry because of employment and exports, and in helping industry, of course, it drives up costs and expenditure on drugs in the NHS. Now,
0: someone's going to have to decide what to pay for, and uh, Andrew Lansley has said he wants to put that decision back in the hands of clinicians which I suppose on the surface seems like a good idea, but it's not necessarily going to be great news for GP consortia, is it?
1: Well, you know, there's an old joke saying don't allow the frontline troops to have to make the decisions about whether to fight and when. Um, The difficult choices that GPs and consultants have in deciding whether to use drugs will be, I think, made much more complicated because the GP commissioners will have the budget They, in practice or principle, will have to decide the rationing criteria. And we're back to PCTs, where we know that different PCTs have different rationing criteria and make different decisions. So it's this dreaded term, postcode rationing. It's there in the NHS in a profundity. And what we'll have is, again, more disputes where you get the drug and I don't and I will go to the press and we will have disputes. So that will make life for the GP commissioners and the practising doctors extremely difficult.
0: Sure. Presumably not press, but courts too.
1: There certainly will be legal challenge about why in a government universal system people should have different treatment in different places.
0: Does anyone know how GP consortia are actually going to make that decision?
1: Well... I think the only thing we can do is speculate about how GP consortia are going to work in this area, and that is, they'll presumably do what they do now. The PCTs have committees with GPs on who make decisions about, you know, whether to give bariatric bariatric surgery at 40 or 50 BMI, along with nice guidelines or whatever. So they will have that problem, and the big criticism made of that is that the 152 PCTs now make different decisions. So the question is, what will the consortia do? Will they form coalitions? Will they contract with NICE to get NICE to do all this work at the national level, which reverses what Lansley wants? It is very difficult to see because often, depending on how much management allowance goes to the GP consortia, their capacity to develop the science of rationing and priority setting is going to be quite limited and therefore they will be looking to help and collaboration i suspect
0: do you think that value-based pricing and what nice does to set an upper threshold are actually mutually exclusive can we have a system which in which both goes on
1: usually industry when it comes to nice sets its price in order to come below the thirty thousand pounds per quali So there is a game going on there already. With um, value-based pricing, the game will continue, although there will be some flexibility in pushing the price down. The the big problem, as as I see it, is whether that potential can actually be used.
0: Alan, thanks for joining us. And you can read Alan's editorial online on bmj.com. Now to the FTA. In a feature published in the BMJ this week, we look at device regulation. There's an editorial to go along with that feature, written by Professor Jerry Avon, who's from Harvard Medical School and is also Chief of the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, who joins me on the phone now. Jerry, how did we end up in a situation where devices have such an easy regulatory ride from the FDA
2: the way that devices are regulated by the FDA in the United States is uh, almost a historical accident in the sense that for many many years going back to the, the dawn of time almost FDA had a a uh, center that dealt with drugs, a center that dealt with devices and radiological health, which got lumped into the same center, mm. a center that deals with biologics, and, and then, of course, a whole other part of FDA that deals with food and another part that deals with cosmetics. So this is really a, a an accident of history. And as the device branch of FDA developed, it ended up with much more dumbed-down uh, standards for approval and safety than the pharmaceutical branch did, probably because when this got started, devices were far simpler. Uh, There were things like IV tubing, and as devices have gotten much more sophisticated, the evidentiary approach of the devices branch has not really kept up, and they've uh, stuck with standards for approval and surveillance that are really much more Fit for IV tubing than they are for complicated uh, pacemakers or joint implants.
0: Sure. So has this, you know, is this something that's that has been looked at, or has it just been almost ignored for the uh, until this
2: point? Well, for many years, and literally up until the past year, uh, it was common knowledge among people uh, throughout the American medical community who thought about these things that the device branch. At FDA was really uh, marching to a different drummer, uh, in fact, a, a somewhat offbeat drummer, mm. than the rest of FDA was. And under the prior administration, the attitude was well, FDA's job is to just facilitate the flow of commerce and not bother large companies in their desire to sell their products. And we saw that in drugs as well, but it really was carried to an extreme in devices, in which uh, under President Bush, the FDA. Um, had a much more a fair attitude about not wanting to put industry uh, to a very mm. severe tests about its products. All that really changed in the last year in which a new commissioner uh, and deputy commissioner were named at the FDA who have much more of a public health and uh, regulatory approach to this as opposed to their predecessors. And one of the early things that was done by the new regime in the past year was to uh, get rid of the head of the FDA devices branch and replace him with um, a team that was much more concerned about patient safety and public health and science than had been the case before. Sure.
0: One argument the industry puts forward to kind of keep the status quo is that their, their new devices represent incremental changes, and I suppose that makes sense. You know, if you if you put a new type of battery in a device, it seems overkill to go back and do do all the testing. But substantial changes um, or new devices, you know, obviously should be different. So, how do you think we could decide what is an incremental and what, a, a substantial change that does require um, further regulation?
2: Well, it is within FDA's current regulatory authority to be able to say to a company, um, no, you can't go through the, uh, this is pretty much the same as the other stuff, route uh, for approval. You need to do, um, not again, not testing from the animal stage up that'll take 10 years and cost billions of dollars, but you do need to do some more evaluation and you cannot just say substantially equivalent. Uh, They can do that right now. And so it really comes down to a... um, political decision, frankly, as to whether they are going to cave into the industry that they're supposed to regulate when they make that demand, or whether they're going to say, no, that actually, you know, changing the circuit and the uh, materials in that pacemaker is enough of a change that we're not going to let you go the substantially equivalent route. You're going to need to provide us with some data about safety and effectiveness.
0: Sure. Now, it's not just sort of industry that's not great here. In your editorial, you talk about as it were, off-label use of devices. How common is that kind of off-label use of a device?
2: Well, in the case of the uh, bile duct stents that were used for peripheral arterial disease, uh, that was very widespread. And among the references I provided with the editorial were descriptions of some of the litigation that is going on now uh, when people had problems with that that off-label use. And Mm. that is becoming a major issue for litigation and concern in the U.S. Now, you mentioned that it's not just industry, and and you're right that certainly no company ever put in a device into a patient. That's all done by doctors. But one of the issues that we find is that often there is considerable off-label marketing of these products, and that's the subject of the litigation that I referenced, in which companies were clearly marketing their stance to doctors whom they knew did peripheral arterial surgery and not bile duct surgery. And there was a, an obvious and well-documented promotional strategy to get these products to be used by surgeons for purposes for which they had never been approved or, or really well evaluated. Mm. So yes, it takes two to entangle, uh, a phrase I learned from BMJ, but it is also the case that industry has really been promoting these drugs in ways that are certainly inappropriate and perhaps even illegal.
0: Sure. Now, another big problem is the, the industry self-reporting of problems with devices. Um, is that something that, that's been looked at by the uh, the new regime at the FDA as well?
2: We have figured out over many years, and again, more effectively in just the last year or two, on the drug side, how to have a, a um, proactive a surveillance system that will use data just from the healthcare delivery system as it is generated every day to track what is happening in terms of drugs and side effects so that if there is a problem, we don't have to hope that the manufacturer will uncover it. And that tool, which is called the Sentinel System, which is just being developed uh, at this year and next year by FDA, mm. is something which could be brought to bear for devices as well, The problem there, of course, is that we don't keep very good records of what devices get put into patients, which is another piece of the problem.
0: Sure. So, I mean, we've talked about problems and a little bit about solutions, but in an ideal world, what would you like to to see happen at the FDA to, to regulate these devices a bit more effectively?
2: I think we would need for FDA to really embrace its public health role rather than its role of regulating an industry that has too much sway over its decisions and to say that it's always a fine balance between you know one doesn't want to cry wolf uh, unnecessarily for either drugs or devices based on inadequate data but at the same time one does need to have in place a system such that if there is a problem it will be detected quickly so that we could do something about it it's more complicated with devices than drugs, because you can recall a drug. It's much more problematic mm. to say the pacemaker that Mrs. Jones has inside of her uh, might short circuit. And then, what is the harm involved in replacing all those pacemakers as opposed to leaving them where they are and keeping your fingers crossed? But those are issues that you can deal with if you have the data. So, there's really no substitute for FDA collecting very uh, effectively data on outcomes. And then the other thing FDA needs to do a better job on is its standards for approval in the first place and deciding that you need to be able to demonstrate that a a product is still safe and still effective even if it bears some resemblance to another product on the market. And that, again, is something FDA is able to do and I hope will be doing more of in the coming years.
0: And Jerry's editorial is available online on BMJ.com. And you can read more about regulation of drugs in particular in Jerry's book, Powerful Drugs. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll find out about the work of Save the Children and also about the new NC Pod inquiry into surgery for the elderly. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit BMJ.com.